Greetings and welcome to Canada's Great War, where I look at Canada during the First World War. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday and looks at all of the Prime Ministers in Canadian history. And right now I'm on part two, looking at the opposition leaders who never became Prime Minister. And of course, on Thursdays, I have Coast to Coast, which looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. I do all of these podcasts myself. I do the writing, the research, the promotion, everything. So, every dollar you give goes straight to me, and it helps keep all of it going, and I truly do appreciate it. And everybody who donates or becomes a patron gets mentioned on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and in the next episode. You can also review the podcasts, and I really appreciate that too, and people who give a five-star review also get mentioned on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on the next episode. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Instagram, my handle is bairdo37, and I'm on Twitter at Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. When looking at Canada in the First World War, the pictures tend to tell the story of white Canadians fighting in battles. The stories of the soldiers also focus on white Canadians, but there were many others who fought and died for their country. This week, I was going to specifically look at the number 2 construction battalion, but I decided that I would expand to look at Canada's black soldiers during the First World War. On August 29th, I'll be looking at Canada's indigenous soldiers who also played a massive role in the fight. Throughout Canada's history, black soldiers have played a role from the War of 1812 all the way up to the Boer War. In fact, William Hall, the first black person to ever be awarded the Victoria Cross, was from Nova Scotia. Yesterday afternoon in the Annapolis Valley village of Hansport, 45 miles from Halifax, a Canadian Legion memorial was unveiled to the memory of William Hall, Canada's first Negro Victoria Cross winner. The story goes back to the Indian mutiny and the relief of Lucknow. Barry MacDonald of the CBC was at the ceremony, and here he is to report from Halifax. William Hall was born at Horton near Hansport, Nova Scotia, the son of Negro slaves whose ship, en route from Halifax, had been captured on the high seas by a British warship and brought to Nova Scotia. He joined the Royal Navy, and in the year 1857, at the height of the Indian Mutiny, was in one of two Royal Navy brigades ordered to move overland to the relief of Lucknow. It was on November 14th of that year, just 90 years ago this Friday, that Hall won his V.C. in the attack on the heavily fortified and defended mosque, which was the center of Lucknow's resistance. Two naval gun crews under heavy fire got their guns to within 20 yards of the mosque. There, the intense fire from the thick wall completely wiped out one crew and left only Hall and one officer standing of the other crew. For their outstanding valor in continuing to operate their gun till they could be relieved, Hall and the officer were both awarded the Victoria Cross. William Hall was the first man of his race to win the VC, and the first Canadian to win it after the decoration was instituted, though two others had previously received it under a retroactive clause. All three, of course, were serving in the British forces, as Canada had no armed services of her own at the time. Hall retired from the Navy in 1876 and returned to Canada, settling down as a farmer at Horton, his birthplace. He was nearly 80 when he died in 1904. He's buried in the Baptist churchyard at Hansport, 
and it's there that the memorial to him stands. It's a stone cairn erected through the efforts of the Hans County branch of the Canadian Legion, who felt that this resting place of a Canadian hero should not go unremembered. Despite a chilling November wind and a nasty drizzle, the citizens of Hansport turned out in large numbers for yesterday's unveiling. The Canadian Legion attended in a body, and they, together with Army and Navy detachments, formed a square around the memorial. The unveiling was carried out by Rear Admiral C.R.H. Taylor, Commanding Officer Atlantic Coast, Royal Canadian Navy. I shouldn't forget to mention either that several of William Hall's relatives were present at Hansport yesterday to see this final tribute paid to a man who had won the highest decoration it was within his sovereign's power to bestow. This is Barry MacDonald speaking from Halifax. In the 1850s, black settlers moved from California to Vancouver Island for a better life, and about 50 of those new immigrants organized themselves into the Victoria Pioneer Rifle Corps, an all-black volunteer force in the city, and that corps would disband in 1865. When the First World War started and Canadians enlisted in huge numbers beginning in August of 1914, there was a focus on getting white Canadians, specifically those born in Canada who had come from Britain and Ireland. Black Canadians saw the war and wanted to do their part as well, and they would begin to enlist too, but even though they were looking to serve just as white Canadians were, they were faced with discrimination almost immediately. In Canada, the black population at the time numbered about 20,000, and over the course of the war, 1,200 or 6% of the total population served. That number would have likely been far higher without racism and in an effort to prevent black soldiers from serving in the army. Lieutenant Colonel George Fowler, the commander of the 104th Battalion, would state in his attempt to remove 20 black soldiers from his regiment, quote, I have been fortunate to have secured a very fine class of recruits, and I do not think it is fair to these men that they should have to mingle with Negroes. End quote. Another officer would state, quote, Would Canadian Negroes make good fighting men? I do not think so. End quote. One black soldier would attempt to enlist and said that he would kill many Germans, and he was told that he could not serve with any white regiment. A group of 50 black Canadians in Sydney, Nova Scotia also attempted to enlist together, and they were told, quote, This is not for you, fellows. This is a white man's war. End quote. Many of those who went overseas for Canada, despite facing intense racism, also gave their lives. Trooper Robert Randolph Sims from Nova Scotia had worked as a barber before enlisting, and as a member of the Royal Canadian Dragoons, he would die of his wounds in northern France when his regiment was attacked by planes. Private Nelson Harris from London, Ontario was a member of the 52nd Battalion when he was killed by an enemy shell that hit him near Bourlon Wood. Private Harry Andrews Burke was a farmer in Ontario when he joined the 116th Battalion, and he was killed instantly when a German bullet hit him in the head. Prejudice at the time made it very hard for black Canadians to join up in the opening years of the First World War, but they would persist for the chance to serve their country and they would pressure the federal government to allow them. Even for those who were able to serve, wearing the Canadian uniform did not make things any better. In Nova Scotia, for example, black soldiers were still forced to sit upstairs in the movie theatre. The Canadian government had an official policy that black soldiers be accepted into the army, but at recruiting stations the vast majority were rejected. Many white soldiers who had enlisted also stated that they would refuse to sign up or fight alongside black soldiers. St. John Member of Parliament William Pugsley would raise the issue of the discrimination facing black Canadians attempting to enlist in the House of Commons. 
but he was told that there was no Dominion legislation authorizing discrimination against black Canadians. In November 1915, J.R.B. Whitney, the editor of the Toronto Black newspaper The Canadian Observer, wrote to Sir Sam Hughes asking if he would accept a platoon of 150 black men provided it maintained that strength through the war. Hughes replied, quote, These men can form a platoon in any battalion now. There is nothing in the world to stop them. End quote. Whitney then began to advertise in his newspaper, and he was able to enlist volunteers for the platoon. The Windsor Star would report, quote, In every issue of the paper there appeared on the first page a strongly worded appeal headed Call for Recruits, and below it a blank form to be filled in by each prospective volunteer. So, in addition to his other duties, Mr. Whitney became a very efficient recruiting officer, and week after week he urged the cause through his paper and responses came quickly. End quote. In January 1916, he reported to Sir Sam Hughes that he had enlisted many Toronto recruits and added in a request a second black enlisted man for a recruitment tour through southwestern Ontario. Hughes would pass his request to W.E. Hodgins, who found that while there were plenty of recruits, no arrangement had been made to find a battalion commander to command the platoon. He would say that it was doubtful that any commander would accept a black platoon into a, quote, white man's battalion, end quote. Hodgins then denied the request to form a black Canadian unit. On March 15th, Whitney received a letter from a Toronto recruiting officer that stated no commanding officer was willing to enlist them and the plan would have to be abandoned. Whitney would go to Hodgins and state that he had 40 volunteers and he could not tell them to disband. Hodgins then contacted General Logie and asked him to find a unit that would admit the platoon. Logie then conducted a canvas of his district and all the battalion commanders rejected the idea. Several commanders stated that by admitting black Canadians, it would discourage white recruitment and increase dissatisfaction among men who had already enlisted. The commander of the 48th Highlanders would state, quote, We have, being a kilted regiment, always drawn the line at taking colored men. End quote. With the growing push to get more recruits, many politicians came out in favor of black troops. General Willoughby Gwatkin would be tasked by the government to write a report on the enlistment of black Canadians in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. He would create a memorandum that was very much against black recruitment. It would state, quote, The civilized Negro is vain and imitative. In Canada, he is not being impelled to enlist by a high sense of duty. In the trenches, he is not likely to make a good fighter, and the average white man will not associate with him on terms of equality, end quote. The memorandum would continue on detailing what General Guetkin felt about black troops in France. It states, quote, In France, in the firing line, there would be no place for a black battalion. It would be eyed askance. It would crowd out a white battalion. It would be difficult to reinforce. End quote. Throughout the country, black Canadian community leaders led recruitment drives. By November 1916, recruitment drives were being conducted outside of Nova Scotia, including a tour with government funds, from Montreal to Toronto to raise recruits. In Windsor, Ontario, in January 1917, several black Americans agreed to enlist. In fact, over the course of the war, over 100 black Americans enlisted in the Canadian Army. Captain Gafer in Edmonton would conduct tours in the province and speak at black churches to raise enlistment, and he would then move to Winnipeg to continue his efforts, and he left a black enlisted man in charge of the Edmonton office. The 106th Battalion would accept several black soldiers, at least at first. 
As the recruitment process began for the battalion, protests began over the enlistment of black Canadians. As a result, only 16 black volunteers were accepted into the battalion, including a man named Jeremiah Jones, who I will talk about later. Others would help in different ways. Sam Langford, one of the greatest black boxers to not only come out of Canada but to ever compete, would begin to teach boxing to black Canadian soldiers before they were shipped out. In 1917, when conscription came into law, the black soldiers who had tried to enlist years earlier and were refused now found that they were bound by law to serve. There were some who were angry over being refused when they had tried to volunteer initially, and they refused to respond to the new law. In an odd irony, some of those who did not go along with the new law were then taken off the street and held against their will until they enlisted. Now I'm going to talk about the number two construction battalion. For two years, with lobbying by black soldiers and others, the Canadian government finally agreed to create a black unit. On May 11, 1916, the British War Office would inform the Governor-General that it had approved the formation of the All-Black Battalion. On July 5, 1916, the number 2 Construction Battalion would be officially formed in Nova Scotia. This battalion was the first large black military unit in Canadian history, and recruitment would take place across the country. While most of the enlistments came from Nova Scotia, some came from New Brunswick and Ontario, as well as the Western Provinces and even the United States. There were some rules that the government also put in place, the most obvious being that black soldiers in the battalion could not have guns. The Victoria Daily Times would report on October 18, 1916, quote, Although the recruitment has only just started, large numbers have already enlisted and it will only be a short while before the battalion is up to strength. Engineering construction work is most important, and the call is urgent for more men. End quote. The Edmonton Journal would state, quote, The men enlisting in the Coloured Battalion will be in a position to add glory to their race and add to the ever-increasing respect in which they are held throughout the British Empire. The British, with their love of fair play, have fought for the freedom of the coloured people for many years. End quote. According to an article in the Montreal Gazette during the recruitment drive, only black Canadians were accepted into the battalion and those with construction work experience were preferred. In Ottawa, one individual who joined the battalion was Charles Edward Stewart, who worked as a porter at the Intercolonial Hotel. When the First World War began, he left his job to join an Ottawa battalion and was accepted. He then went with the battalion to Bermuda but was soon transferred to another battalion and was then transferred to a third battalion. At this point, he sailed to England, and it was in England he developed a severe fever and sickness and was sent back to Canada and discharged. He recovered and re-enlisted and gained the rank of sergeant. Frank Seners was another individual who had experience on ships when the war broke out, and with his military experience from the Boer War, he quickly enlisted. Reverend William White, who would serve as the battalion's chaplain, would play the leading role in the formation of the unit. He was also made an honorary captain for his efforts, which made him one of the few black commissioned officers in the Canadian Army at the time. And while the battalion was all black, the officers, with the exception of Reverend White, were white. Reverend White was the son of a slave who came from Virginia and settled in Nova Scotia in 1900, where he studied theology. His daughter, Portia White, would go on to become one of Canada's greatest concert singers in the 1940s and 1950s. The unit was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Sutherland, a railroad contractor and half the soldiers came from Nova Scotia, while the rest came from Ontario and elsewhere. 
On November 21, 1916, the battalion was inspected by F.B. McCrudy, the acting minister of the militia. The soldiers paraded with their band and marched to the depot with their commanding officer, Colonel Sutherland, and McCurdy then addressed the soldiers and stated his satisfaction on the splendid appearance of the battalion. He would then say that he had heard, quote, good reports he had received on their excellent behavior and pointed out that in this great struggle for humanity and freedom, the colored citizen had shown the world that he was ready to stand side by side with his white comrade and brother and do his bit and help win a glorious victory for the Allies, end quote. Things did not get off to a great start for the battalion, though. On December 21, 1916, the Jockey Club barn, where the number 2 construction battalion was quartered, burned to the ground. Several officers and soldiers lost trunks and all of their clothing. Tasked with non-combat support roles, over 600 black Canadians would serve with the battalion over the course of its existence during the war. At first, the battalion served just in Canada, but in March of 1917 it boarded the SS Southland, and journeyed to Liverpool. There was also an idea put forward to send the black soldiers over on their own, segregated ship, but the Navy rejected this idea. Once they reached England, they were then confined to their camp, not allowed to fraternize with white soldiers, or even go out into public. On May 17th, the battalion soldiers were sent to France, where they served the Canadian Forestry Corps. I actually did an episode on the Canadian Forestry Corps in Canadian History X back in September, and you can find it on my website, canadaehx.com. In that role, they helped to provide lumber that was needed for the trenches, as well as for bridges and other items that were vital to the logistics of war. They would also help construct railways, roads, and trenches themselves. J.R.B. Whitney would write, quote, in this terrific struggle, every man's help is needed, and every true British subject will do his best, regardless of color or creed. This is a construction battalion. It is more important than a fighting battalion because bridges, railway, and artillery roads, which have been destroyed by the enemy in retreat, must be rebuilt, so that the fighting men may be supplied with food and munitions of the war. End quote. Despite the fact that they had served a vital role in France, they were not treated equally by the Canadian army. They were given equipment and clothing that was below the quality given to the other men in the army, and with poor clothing that wasn't ideal for the elements, many in the battalion would fall sick. When they did fall sick, the only doctor who would help them was Dr. Dan Murray, the grandfather of Canadian icon Anne Murray. When Dr. Murray was away, the rest of the medical staff would refuse to administer care to the soldiers. By the time that November 11, 1918 came along, 21 of the 605 members of the battalion had died on the battlefield. When the First World War ended and the men sailed back to Canada and returned to their civilian lives, there were still issues with racism. On January 7, 1919, a race riot broke out when an unidentified black sergeant major of the No. 2 Construction Battalion tried to arrest an angry white soldier. White soldiers then attacked the men of the No. 2 Construction Battalion as they paraded, and in the fight several white soldiers were injured and various black soldiers were hit by flying rocks. In 1920, the unit was disbanded and the efforts of the battalion would not be formally recognized until 62 years later, in 1982. In 1992, the No. 2 Construction Battalion was designated as an event of national historic significance. It wasn't just black Canadians doing their part overseas either. 
Back home, they would work in factories, and even while facing racism on the job, they built the bombs and weapons that helped Canada and the Allies win the First World War. Many also took part in patriotic activities such as raising funds for the war effort. Today for my soldier profile, I'm going to look at arguably the most famous black Canadian soldier of the First World War, Jeremiah Jones. Born on March 30, 1858 in Nova Scotia, Jones would enlist as a private with the 106th Battalion on June 19, 1916. In order to enlist, despite being 58, he lied about his age and stated he was 39. He would join his regiment on February 9, 1917 and was sent to England. After fighting at Passchendaele, he would then serve in the Battle of Vimy Ridge. At Vimy Ridge, his fellow troops were pinned down by machine gun fire and he volunteered to attack the gun emplacement. He managed to reach the machine gun nest and tossed in a grenade, killing several soldiers. The rest of the Germans surrendered to him and he forced them to carry the machine gun back across the battlefield to his regiment, where he told them to put it at the feet of his commanding officer. For his bravery, Jones was recommended by his commanding officer for the Distinguished Conduct Medal, but it was never awarded to him, likely because of his race. It should be noted that while several veterans have reported and supported the claim he was recommended for the medal, no records have shown if he ever received it. And the medal is second only to the Victoria Cross in terms of rewards for valor. Later in the battle, he would be wounded and he would spend a considerable time in the hospital. Back home in Nova Scotia, his hometown, and his fellow soldiers would continually recommend him for the medal for his heroics during the war. One of his fellow soldiers would write a letter that stated Jones, quote, had captured a German machine gun, forced the crew to carry it back to our lines, and depositing it at the feet of the CO said, is this thing any good, End quote. Jones would die on November 23, 1950. Calvin Ruck, who was also a black Canadian from Nova Scotia, and who served in the Canadian Senate and was an anti-racism activist, continually lobbied throughout his adult life to get Jones his medal and for the recognition of the number 2 construction battalion. Young men looking to enlist were bluntly told that this is a white man's war. And they were told also, we will call you when we need you. When the war erupted in August 1914, there was almost a stampede to recruiting stations. So they, there was all kinds of people wanting to get into the army. So I guess the, the, the powers that be felt that blacks would not be make good, capable soldiers. They would make good combat soldiers. They felt that white soldiers would not want to serve alongside of black soldiers. There were a number of representations made to members of parliament, to high officials, and wanted to know why blacks were being turned away. Um, one letter came from a gentleman in St. John, New Brunswick. Who, had, who was instrumental in having possibly 20 blacks enlisted in a battalion being organized in Sussex. These people were accepted into the army, they were sworn in, they were sent to, sent to Sussex to join I think, the 104th Battalion. When they got there, the, the officer in charge wouldn't accept them, he sent them back to St. John. These people were not recruits at that point in stage. They weren't volunteers, they were soldiers, they were in the army. They asked the chief of the general staff to make a report and some recommendations on how to deal with the situation. And his remarks were, were very disparaging to blacks. He indicated that the civilized Negro is vain and, and imitative. 
he felt that they were imitating whites, that they didn't really want to serve. And he said they were not impelled to serve by a, a high sense of duty or loyalty. And he said, he asked a question, would blacks make good combat soldiers? And he answered, he answered his own question by saying he, he did not think so. So here was your top, top military person speaking very disparagingly of blacks. And he went on to recommend that to form one or more labor battalions. And he also indicated that blacks from Nova Scotia would be suitable for such, for such a battalion. It was just like a forgotten story. It wasn't, it wasn't generally known. It wasn't a very uh, enlightening aspect of Canadian military history, the way blacks were treated. So I don't think it was people were too anxious to, to deal with it. I guess they figured it was best forgotten. By talking about it, people become more aware and that this was a sad chapter in Canadian military history. But hopefully such a thing will never happen again. And action is the best way, such as this monument, so that people know that black Canadians did serve their country, and they served it faithfully. Ruck would die in 2004 not achieving his goal of getting Jones his medal. On September 9, 2000, the last post fund erected a gravestone for Jones with full military honours. And finally, on February 22, 2010, the Canadian government posthumously awarded Jones the Canadian Forces Medallion for Distinguished Service. Nova Scotia Lieutenant Governor Mary Ann Francis would say at the ceremony, quote, Private Jones served with honour even though as a black man he did not enjoy all the rights and privileges that white citizens did. End quote. I wanted to profile another soldier who also did his part during the war. Ethelbert Christian was born in the United States and would settle in Canada and enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in 1915. On April 9, 1917, Christian was serving with the Winnipeg Grenadiers during the Battle of Vimy Ridge when a shell buried him in a trench. Both his legs and arms were crushed by debris and he was trapped for two days. And as his stretcher bearers carried him back to the trenches, they were both killed by enemy fire. Christian would survive, but gangrene would take both his arms and his legs. After returning to Canada, he would stay positive about his situation, and he married a volunteer aide who worked at the Toronto hospital where he was healing. Due to his extensive injuries, he required full-time caregiving, and his wife would petition the federal government for assistance. This would lead to the creation of the Attendance Allowance, which provides disabled veterans funding to pay for caregiving needs. Christian would also create a prosthesis that allowed him to correspond with other veterans. In July of 1936, he would attend the dedication of the new Canadian National Vimy Memorial by King Edward VIII, and in 1939 he met King George VI and Queen Elizabeth when they visited Toronto in 1939. Living with his artificial limbs, he would pass away in 1954. Hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the black soldiers in the First World War. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. 
you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Veteran Affairs, Global News, Legion Magazine, Wikipedia, TVO, Black Canadians in Uniform, Race and Recruitment in World War I, Windsor Star, Winnipeg Tribune, Edmonton Journal, Montreal Gazette, CBC, Toronto Sun, and the Demobilization Riots in the CEF. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.